0: Back in those long-ago Cold War days, under Cheyenne Mountain, potential disasters played out frequently, daily, almost hourly. But as I am always cautious not to sensationalize these histories, and for those who didn't have this job in the Air Force, I will give you the breakdown. What caused these emergencies, how they were dealt with, and why they almost never led A full blown crisis. If you haven't listened to the last episode, go back and do that, because it explains the pattern that was set up from the earliest days a pattern of technological breakdown and human intervention. Those technological systems weren't necessarily good at what they did, but they were dedicated. And so it didn't take much to trigger one of the detection systems that NORAD was constantly monitoring. The early warning radar systems and infrared sensing satellites were always watching for something, anything that might have been an unpleasant surprise. They were watching so that it wouldn't be a surprise. In fact, All of the collected data was sent to Cheyenne Mountain to be collated and analyzed very quickly. Any indication of an attack, even an ambiguous single ping on any of the systems, began a formal process of threat assessment. Now, this wouldn't be the panicked bustle of a Hollywood crisis. Far from it because the first stage of the threat assessment, which was called the Missile Display Conference, happened a lot. In the 18-month period between January 1979 and June 1980, it happened 3,703 times, roughly seven times a day. During the Missile Display Conference, the duty officers at the command centers, NORAD, National Military Command Center, the Alternate National Military Command Center, the Strategic Air Command, and the Canadian Federal Warning Center would confer with each other and, almost always, determine that the signal was from anything other than a missile. The defense support satellite sensors were often triggered by fires, explosions, and reflected sunlight one of which was guaranteed to happen at least a few times a day across the vast expanse of the Soviet Union and China. But if, during the course of this first conference, a cause couldn't immediately be determined, the commander at NORAD would step up the analysis to a threat assessment conference. The main purpose here was still to figure out if the whole thing was a flock of Canadian geese, or something even more sinister. But this new escalation also elevated the stage of alert, with real consequences on the ground at military installations around the world. More senior officials were brought into the conference as well, the commander of Strategic Air Command and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff among them. And you might be asking, what comes after the threat assessment conference? Well, if the cause of the warning was still in doubt, or if it seemed increasingly credible that the warning really was an inbound missile volley, then the final stage was the Missile Attack Conference, which would bring in all of the most senior military and government officials, even waking up the U.S. President, and presumably beginning the process of unfurling the contents of the notorious and dreaded football, the tote bag of doom. According to the histories we have, and certainly up to the point of the retrospective on false missile attack alerts carried out by Senators Gary Hart and Barry Goldwater in late 1980, that final conference had never and has never been convened. Minutes or moments away from it, but not quite. During that 18-month period that I mentioned, Of the 3,703 missile display conferences, four were escalated to threat assessment conferences. And so that's how we'll begin this story of mishaps and the missile men who stood in the way of disaster. This time on the Cold War Vault. Sometime on the 3rd of October 1979, it seemed likely that the Soviet Union had launched a nuclear missile from a submarine lurking off the Pacific coast. Back in the early 1960s, when it became clear that the Soviet Union could field a fleet of submarines capable of launching nuclear missiles, the U.S. was forced to expand its ability to detect the new threat, which, I'm sure I've mentioned before, could be launched, fly, and land in a fraction of the time that an intercontinental ballistic missile could. As little as five minutes in some scenarios. The answer to this 1960s problem was to modify 1950s radar technology into the AVCO FSS-7SLBM detection system, known as the Fuzzy 7s. This system was fully deployed by 1972, Later in the decade, they were showing their age. There were plans to replace them with the PAVE-PAUSE system, but that wouldn't happen until 1986. And so it was on that day in October 1979 that the Fuzzy 7 on Mount Hebo in Oregon really showed its age and its dedicated purpose. It had been deployed to detect submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and so that is exactly what it did it picked up an object at low orbital altitude incoming. It sent this information to NORAD, where it was displayed on the 1950s-era green phosphor radar monitors that had been donated by the Federal Aviation Administration. They were called, probably not entirely affectionately, green monsters. And as a further side note, they were still in use at Cheyenne Mountain until the end of the Cold War. I'm sure you're seeing a pattern emerging here. The missile display conference had barely begun when the Mount Hebo radar generated a launch and impact report. The conference was escalated to a threat assessment. Cool heads and common sense brought an end to the tension when it became clear that the seriously outdated radar system had picked up a spent rocket in low Earth orbit drifting in from the west on its way to a fiery demise. It was brief, but it was serious, and it would not be the last time that the Fuzzy 7s caused the same kind of trouble. In fact, it was only five months later, on the 15th of March, 1980, that the radar, it was the same installation on Mount Hebo, detected and reported four SLBMs launching from the Carol Islands, This time, the missiles were real. They had been launched by the Soviet Navy as part of a training exercise. What was not real was that the aging and frequently inaccurate system predicted an impact point for one of the missiles in the continental United States. The Threat Assessment Conference convened again. And again, those involved correctly judged that the imagined threat was the fault of the suspect radar. But the most dangerous close calls didn't come from recognized and expected failures in old technologies like the Fuzzy Sevens. The worst of these incidents came from unexpected and even mysterious gremlins in the NORAD machine. We'll take a step back. A few months before that last Mount Hebo failure, and to the start of our story, to the beginning of the last episode, to November ninth, 1979, what had caused the national security infrastructure to wake Zbigniew Brzezinski in the middle of the night, threatening World War Three? This time, technological glitches were assisted mightily by human error, and a lack of the necessary thought experiments in worst-case scenarios. The alert status board in Cheyenne Mountain lit up. All of the green monsters. Immediately apparent to everyone was that the Soviet attack looked real this time. Not one or two stray missiles, but a proper, full-scale attack of the kind that the U.S. had been planning for. Several submarine-launched ballistic missiles were inbound from the U.S. West Coast. The Missile Display Conference was elevated to a Threat Assessment Conference almost immediately. The calculated impact points gave U.S. military commanders less than five minutes to decide how to respond before the various balloons started going up across the American West. As tense as it might have been for everyone on the line, there was some doubt among the senior military leadership. Simultaneous conferences were held with the sensor sites, the radar and satellite analysis centers, and none of them had detected a missile launch. The story of the Soviet attack was only coming from inside Cheyenne Mountain. It was probably bad data, though no one understood where it could be coming from. But in the business of Cold War nuclear defense, there was no room and no time for hoping for the best. Strategic Air Command's B-52 crews were told to stand by and the Minuteman missiles went on low-level alert. Interceptors were scrambled and the President's National Emergency Airborne Command post took off from Andrews Air Force Base. Without the President, I should point out, having not heard from the White House. We know now that President Carter was still asleep in the residence and wouldn't know about the crisis until the morning. In air traffic control centers across the US, a special warning buzzer sounded, which was not something that air traffic controllers were used to hearing. It was an order from the military to start the process of clearing U.S. airspace, all of it, for the war that was to come. This stage of emergency, the air traffic control warning, would prove to be the biggest catalyst for change. Not the averted crisis or the potential for disaster, but the fact that working on an unrelated story, a reporter was in an air traffic control center, when the alarm went off. This started the process of journalistic prodding that would make the November 9th glitch international news. It would become emblematic of the potential for disaster that NORAD technology could cause, providing a real-life foundation for the fictions of 1983's War Games. That tidbit isn't from the filmmakers either, it's from the official history of NORAD. What had happened is that a technician had inserted a training simulation of a nuclear war into the actual Cheyenne Mountain computer system. As one analysis later phrased it, as it played back, it annihilated the world in high fidelity. The press went wild with the story. And yet the crisis had been addressed and averted. Not that confusion of that kind was a particularly safe mode of operations for any nuclear force, but the human element intervened and it worked. But seven months later, an even more dangerous glitch would create another crisis at Cheyenne Mountain. More dangerous because U.S.-Soviet relations were entering a new phase of suspicion and stress the early 1980s, the subject of the last series on the Great War Scare of 1983. That tense time was the background for a series of events that would occur on either side of the superpower divide during the war scare years, almost unthinkably dangerous scenarios given the geopolitical situation. The US and Soviet Union were on the brink for at least 10 Very Serious Reasons. 2.26am, the 3rd of June, 1980. Strategic Air Command Headquarters at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska sees a message from NORAD that two SLBMs are inbound. World War III has begun. Again. The warning was transmitted over the secure and dedicated circuits of the 427M communications segment. No mistaking it, and the missiles were inbound at a depressed trajectory. Inefficient, but quick, and so three minutes to impact. But there were only two missiles. 18 seconds later, the message from NORAD was that two more SLBMs were on their way. Sets of two, suspicious. But in matters of national defense and global thermonuclear war, there was no time to assume what was obvious to most. The attack was more bad data from the outdated computers. Strategic Air Command ordered the B-52 and FB-111 crews to start their engines. Alerts went to the Minuteman missiles and the submarine fleet. But then the indication disappeared. Let me explain exactly what SAC was seeing. Strategic Air Command didn't get raw data from the NORAD systems. They didn't have a mythical big board tracking the inbound threats. In fact, SAC had requested that they receive direct data from the radar and satellites in the negotiations for the new computer systems associated with the Worldwide Military Command System. And the request had been denied. And so everything was filtered through Cheyenne Mountain. What SAC did did see was a change in a status indicator, a string of digits that was sent frequently, all day, every day, and read out a string of zeros. This was the test pattern to make sure that the communications channels were operating in case something ever actually did change at NORAD. But suddenly, the string of zeros read out 0002. So in the middle of their card games, and pool games, and probably naps, the bomber crews ran from barracks to tarmac to nuclear-armed B-52s and started their engines. And then the 2s disappeared. SAC called Cheyenne Mountain. The number was on speed dial, we must assume and NORAD denied that there had ever been any twos at all. SAC ordered the crews to shut down their engines but stay in their aircraft. And then the twos came back. This time, two land-based Soviet missiles headed for the United States. The National Military Command Center saw two more submarine-launched missiles at nearly the same time. The NMCC convened the first round of conferences the Missile Display Conference, and the NMCC, the alternate NMCC. Strategic Air Command and NORAD all offered their considered opinion that there were no missiles at all. I think most of you listening, and anyone who's studied the subject for long enough, might come to the same conclusion. Why? Well, first strikes shouldn't come in pairs. That was odd the volleys seemed random, and the satellites and radar systems were still reporting nothing. Probably the most suggestive circumstantial evidence was that over a very short time, the computer systems were earning a bad reputation for faulty data. No one wanted the phantom missile flights to cause any more anxiety than they already had. More importantly, no one wanted them to cause a mistake in judgment. No one knew where the numbers were coming from, and importantly, no one knew exactly what systems might be involved. So the duty officer at the National Military Command Center elevated the conference to the next level, a threat assessment conference. Not because anyone on the missile display conference thought it was real, but because the threat assessment conference would bring in everyone to the conversation except the president. So everyone would be on the same page, With the same information, and all would realize that it was another glitch. Somehow, somewhere, the move was counterintuitive. Escalate the situation in order to de-escalate it. It worked. The bomber crews went back to their barracks, and the missile silos reduced their alert levels. The only participant in the crisis that had to live with the repercussions for a little while longer was Blue Eagle the airborne command post for the Pacific, which had launched, according to plan, amid the uncertainty. It continued to orbit a safe distance from Pearl Harbor until the danger had definitely passed. And the process of finding the source for the mysterious twos began. With no leads, and knowing that it was not a repeat of the simulation program debacle of the previous November, the technicians at NORAD decided to just let it run. Don't make any changes, and if the same thing happened again, figure it out. And wouldn't you know, it did happen again. The next Soviet attack came three days later, on the 6th of June. Bomber crews and tanker crews went to their aircraft and spun up the engines, but the alert didn't last long. It had clearly been an error, the same error, and NORAD brought a backup computer online until the culprit could be found. After an exhaustive search by in-house technicians, contractors, and anyone with an insight into the system, the origin of the Phantom Soviet missiles was finally found. It was a faulty chip in the data general Nova 840 multiplexers, which communicated data from NORAD to the command centers in numeric form. For reasons that have never been elaborated on beyond the term faulty, the chip began to send twos instead of zeros. Simple and small, a part that has since been assessed a value of 46 cents. But when the zeros are all's well, and the twos are nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. A faulty chip represented a major security threat. Or did it? With the benefit of hindsight, we can, with cooler heads, evaluate what worked, what didn't, what brought the world to the brink, and what fits the narrative in the echo chamber of global media opinion. And U.S. Congressional criticism. International media caught wind of the events of June 3rd and 6th 1980 and blended them seamlessly with the dissimilar technological failings of November 1979 and formed a scenario in which technology, bugs, errors, either silicon or human, and hubris could or more often inevitably would lead to an accidental third world war. It's a narrative that was propagated in film and other fictions, and persists to this day, with the hero worship of men like Stanislav Petrov, who we will get to in a moment, or the almost involuntary nervous ticks in historical accounts of some with far smaller and less certain roles in averting disaster, like General Leonard Perutz, mentioned for his role in Able Archer 83 right here on the vault, so I'm guilty as well. It is a powerful narrative that plays into our own personal experiences with new technologies over years and decades. With that said, let's look at Petrov. Similarities, differences, perceptions, and the reality of risk. The perspective you will encounter in the Cold War Vault most often is the view from the West. Between the eagle and the bear, the majority of the historical analysis that I do is from the point of view of the eagle. This isn't an arbitrary preference. In fact, if I could do otherwise, it wouldn't be my preference at all. The fact is that the political systems and social expectations in what we call broadly the Western side of the superpower divide are more conducive to honest internal assessments, proper and complete archival record-keeping, and timely declassification of relevant documents. All of that coupled with a vigorous and pestering fourth estate. Now, you don't need to tell me that it isn't perfect, and you do not need to offer innumerable examples to prove the counterpoint to everything I've just said. The government is full of secrets and lies, and the hard-nosed, hard-news men are long gone and long dead. I get it. But it is essential to understand why, on balance, the Soviet Union is so often underrepresented in these tales of the Cold War. In telling these stories of mishaps and missile men, there is a notable exception, and one that offers a Soviet perspective on virtually identical technological failings, and the men who had to use training and good sense to see through the fog of these failing systems. That's the story of Stanislav Petrov. Let me try to navigate the narrow channel between the hagiography, the myth-making, and the alternative opinions that have sprung up regarding those five minutes, soon after midnight on the 26th of September 1983. I am the first to admit that the situation was dangerous. I spent two and a half hours discussing everything that led up to the 1983 war scare in the previous series, and the Petrov incident was at the climax of that time frame. It happened in a time of heightened tensions, and perhaps even the height of tensions. Stanislav Petrov was an officer in the Soviet Air Defense Force, the PVO, a branch of the Soviet military roughly equivalent in function to the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, but with teeth. The PVO shot down Gary Powers' U-2 spy plane in 1960 and a Korean civilian airliner in September 1983. And it is in September 1983 that we find ourselves again. The Soviet Air Defense Force had the eyes and ears of the Soviet Union's nuclear defense, and it was in that realm that Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov found himself on the fateful night. He was at the helm of operations at Serpukhov 15 an installation that served as the Western nerve center for the Soviet missile attack warning system. That system had consisted for years of radar stations scattered around the Soviet frontier, which had the same limitations as the US systems, the warning times. In an effort to extend the warning time from 15 minutes maximum, Earlier in 1983, the Soviets had fielded a space-based system and incorporated it into command and control. Similar to US defense support program satellites, these Soviet satellites could spot the exhaust of launched missiles in infrared, a hot white spot from hundreds, actually thousands of miles away. Like Cheyenne Mountain, serpikov 15 was charged with collecting the data from the entire sensing network and making determinations about whether a possible missile signature was in fact a real missile signature. At about 12:30 in the morning, an alarm sounded. One of the 9 satellites of the Oko constellation had seen a sudden infrared flare over the Malmstrom missile fields in Montana. A single intercontinental ballistic missile. Petrov responded as any officer on duty in an American facility would respond. He dismissed the flash out of hand. A single missile does not signal a first strike. Common sense would tell you that. But in quick succession, four more signals came. Now there were five ICBMs in the air, according to the satellites. Despite the numerous dramatizations, most notably in the 2013 docudrama The Man Who Saved the World, interviews with Petrov going back to the 1990s don't indicate any period of uncertainty, at least not in his actions. The uncertainty, hypotheticals, and counterfactuals would all come later, on the part of Petrov and on the part of everyone who has since told the story. In reality, he had a strong sense that a U.S. first strike would not come with only five missiles. Add to that the fact that the satellite system was brand new, and with new Soviet technology came intrinsic unreliability, at least in the early days. So what had really happened? An article by Jeffrey Forden, et al., published in IEEE Spectrum in 2000, offers an excellent technical breakdown that other recountings of the Petrov incident do not. I'll summarize it here. There were nine new satellites observing the missile fields in Montana and a few other potential staging sites. These were in orbits that swooped in very, very low and then were flung very high, where they would loiter for a while. That's only important if you want to visualize what happened. The satellite that was about to give the world this potentially close brush with doom was Cosmos 1382. This technical description asks the reader to draw a line from Cosmos 1382 across Montana and out into space, on to the sun. This alignment gave the Soviet satellite a direct view of the sun, amplified in high-altitude clouds. These clouds changed the way that the heat signature was dispersed. The Soviet engineers had decided on a viewing angle across the missile fields that would allow for atmospheric absorption of sunlight. But on that particular day, near the autumnal equinox, the high-altitude clouds focused the sun so that in the nerve center of the Soviet missile defense system in the middle of the night, the warning for World War III was sounded. As the satellite and the Earth below shifted, the light found new angles through new clouds, four more times to be exact, so that five flares registered as this mysterious U.S. volley. As I've already said, Petrov believed, based on experience, some training, and common sense, that this was a technical error. A small five-missile first strike was not a scenario that had ever been considered by military intelligence, to his knowledge, and there was the mistrust of the new satellite system. By Petrov's own estimate of time, from the first signal to his final and authoritative declaration of a false alarm, was less than five minutes. The question I would like to ask of this story is, how much of it, the tension and drama, the ticking clock to inevitable doomsday, is a reflection of Western fears? of American assumptions about the Soviet Union, that insect hive without identity or agency, the human machines trained to do their job without thought or question. In a 2013 BBC interview coinciding with the release of the Man Who Saved the World film, Petrov himself says that it was lucky that he was there that night, because He was the only officer in his team that had received a civilian education and so could functionally think for himself. So maybe that fear of Soviet lockstep bureaucracy is valid. Or maybe, for Petrov, it was a sentiment born of bitterness for the military, given what they put him through after the incident. Does the drama of the Petrov story say more about the American inability to understand the Soviet mindset than it does about a fatally rigid command and control system? Counterfactuals are very difficult here. The presumption of the story of the man who saved the world is that an affirmation from Petrov sent up the chain of command would send the missiles flying, but I don't know who was above him in the chain of command that night. I certainly can't know what might have happened if, and that really is a strongly worded if, the false warning might have made it all the way to waking a groggy, but perpetually suspicious, Uri Dropov. But counter to the spirit of the popular narrative, I can tell you that once multiple warnings had been received, A report on the status of the attack was sent to the Soviet general staff, which, as an entity, then called back down the chain to ask Petrov what was going on. So Petrov himself was not in that moment some kind of bulwark against chaos. He offered his opinion, which was incidentally correct, and his superiors accepted that opinion. Evidence for the fact that the crisis had already reached his superiors can be found in The Washington Post, 1999, and Forden et al. 2000. Lest you think I'm making this up to demean the man's legacy, I am not. If anything, his story supports my point without all or any of the drama. The truth is, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was there for a reason. He served his purpose. He was a data collector and a gatekeeper. He made a correct decision. I can't say if it was the correct decision, or if he had passed the affirmation up the line to the next colonel or major general, there would have been another man who saved the world with another correct decision. Maybe Petrov would have been reprimanded for being a dangerous fool who didn't realize that an American attack would never start with five missiles. As history would have it, he was reprimanded for doing the right thing anyway. But that's a story you can pursue on your own. I'm very much done with Petrov's tale. We only know what did happen. But the story is tinted by misunderstanding and fear that still exists, just under the surface. The fears, stoked by the press and felt around the indignant world after the series of errors in Cheyenne Mountain, were also rooted in assumptions about hawkish military men, slaves to their machines. But I would remind you that those career military men were there to read those machines and offer analysis, which they did. No crisis made it to the final stage of decision-making, the Missile Threat Conference. Those trigger-happy button-pushers thought through the problems and de-escalated. As dangerous or even unacceptable as these nuclear false alarms seem, even today, The success of the system, at least in the context of the United States, was not an accident. We'll have to let the legend of Stanislav Petrov find its own resting place in the bigger global story. Let me read from the 1980 Hart-Goldwater report to the Senate Committee on Armed Services. It says this, In no way, Can it be said that the United States was close to unleashing nuclear war as a result of the incidents? In a real sense, the total system worked properly in that even though the mechanical electronic part produced erroneous information, the human part correctly evaluated it and prevented any irrevocable action. There is no guarantee that false alerts will not happen in the future. They will occur and we must rely on the collective judgment of the people manning the system to recognize and deal correctly with them. Well, I could not have said it better myself. Thanks for listening to The Cold War Vault. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. I referenced a lot of documents in this episode, and all of those are available to Patreon supporters. If you like the show, please consider supporting the Vault on Patreon. You can follow on Facebook and Twitter, and of course, wherever you listen, like, subscribe, and review. So remember, when the machines take over and they're prepped to launch those missiles, just hope there's still a human there to unplug it. Until next time.